You don't have to go far into a crystal shop to hear some yoga pant wearing, man bun sporting, matcha tea drinking new ager say to you, we're not humans having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. This quote, although widely used throughout the spiritual community, is rarely attributed to its originator, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Teilhard was far more than a fanatical New Age online guru. Pierre Teilhard was a French philosopher, paleontologist, and scientific writer. He was born in 1881 as a son of a farmer. His mother, interestingly, was the great-grandniece of Voltaire. He became interested in geology and dogma at an early age, studying both the world around him and the world within him. He began a lifelong career as a Jesuit by entering a Jesuit school at the age of 10 years old. At 18, he became a Jesuit novitiate. As a novitiate, for two years, he had to devote himself to prayer work, studies, discipline, and all under the masters of his school. In Amir Axel's extensive biography of Teilhard, we read that it was at the school that he became an ascetic who voluntarily rose at dawn every day and went to sit in the chapel, often in freezing temperatures before the rest of the students awoke. He would follow a similar habit throughout his entire life, wherever he might be. At the age of 24, he began an internship as a professor at a Jesuit college in Cairo, Egypt. During his time in Egypt, he gained a new sense of awareness and invigoration, as he wrote later in his life, saying, It was immediately after I had experienced such sense of wonder in Egypt that there gradually grew in me, as a presence, much more than as an abstract notion, the consciousness of a deep-running, ontological, total current which embraced the whole universe in which I moved. And this consciousness continued to grow until it filled the whole horizon of my inner being. Taylor eventually became a priest, but during his 30s, that career was put to a halt as World War I fell upon the earth. Having the choice to be a military chaplain, an army priest, he instead chose to be a stretch bearer, one who helps carry the wounded. His time in service in the army resulted in him receiving military medals of courage, including the Legion of Honor. He held out in the trenches for four years, attending to his brethren and fighting back when necessary. His attitude and energy were impressive to his colleagues. One of his comrades at the time, Max Begoin, wrote the following about Teilhard during their times on the Belgian front in 1915. The North African sharpshooters of his regiment thought he was protected by his baraka, an Arabic word meaning spiritual stature or supernatural quality. The curtain of machine gun fire and the hail of bombardments both seemed to pass him by. During the attacks of September 2nd at Artois, my brother was wounded and, as he wandered on the battlefield, he saw a single stretcher bearer rising up in front of him and he, for it was Teilhard, accomplished his mission quite imperturbably under terrible ire. I thought I had seen the appearance of a messenger from God. I once asked the Father Teilhard, What do you do to keep this sense of calm during battle? It looks as if you do not see the danger, and fear does not touch you. He answered with that serious but friendly smile, which gave such a human warmth to his words. If I am killed, I shall just change my state. That's all. 
His time in war shaped his outlook on spirituality greatly and would further set the foundations for his life's greatest work which would come to fruition in his later writings. During the most brutal battle, the Battle of Verdun, which saw a total of German and French losses of 420,000 dead and 800,000 gassed or wounded, Teilhard had a mystical vision. On October 14, 1916, in an empty abandoned church, he saw a paranormal emanation of Christ, as he explains in his writing. Meanwhile, my eyes had unconsciously come to rest on a picture that represented Christ with his heart offered to men. This picture was hanging in front of me on the wall of a church into which I had gone to pray. I was still looking at the picture when the vision began. Indeed, I cannot be certain exactly when it began because it had already reached a certain pitch of intensity when I had become aware of it. All I know is that as I let my eyes roam over the outlines of the picture, I suddenly realized that they were melting. They were melting, but in a very special way that I find it difficult to describe. If I relaxed my visual concentration, the whole of Christ's outline, the folds of his robe, the blooms of his skin, merged, though without disappearing, into all the rest. The edge, which divided Christ from the surrounding world, was changing into a layer of vibration in which all distinct delimitation was lost. I noticed that the vibrant atmosphere which formed a halo around Christ was not confined to a narrow strip encircling him, but radiated into infinity. From time to time, what seemed to be trails of phosphorescence streamed across it, in which could be seen a continuous pulsing surge which reached out to the furthest of spheres of matter, forming a sort of crimson ganglion or nervous network running across every substance. The whole universe was vibrating. It was thus that the light and the colors of all the beauties we know shun with an inexpressible iridescence. These countless modifications followed one another in succession, were transformed melted into one another in a harmony that was utterly satisfying to me. I was completely at a loss. I found it impossible to decipher. All I know is that since that occasion, I believe I have seen a hint of it once, and that was in the eyes of a dying soldier. Here, Teilhard believes he became acquainted with the underlying essence of the totality of all things, the hidden network of consciousness that weaves in between all matter, animating and elevating life. That experience would go on to intrigue his mind till his death. It was a glimpse for him into the infinite and immortal essence of the energies that make up our physical lives. He believed that we were all connected throughout this underlying energy grid that provides a channel for individual consciousness. He also believed that we have to cultivate a connection with this energy grid. We have to deliberately elevate ourselves to be aware of it, as he stated here. This perception of a natural psychic unity higher than our souls requires, as I know from experience, a special quality and training in the observer. Once we manage to affect this change of viewpoint, then the earth, our little human earth, is draped in a splendor, floating above the biosphere, whose layers no doubt gradually merge into it. The world of thought, the noosphere, begins to let its crown shine. The noosphere.
The noosphere for Teilhard was the evolving collective consciousness that would develop as we elevate individually and converge into a new upgraded collective reality. After the war, he returned to his life as an academician and taught at the Catholic Institute of Paris. In 1923, he left his position to set about some explorations as a geologist and paleontologist. His first set of explorations were to be in China. There, Teilhard helped in the discovery of the Peking Man's skull in 1929 in Beijing, China. He spent the next 20 years in Asia expanding fossil research, almost being held captive during World War II. Throughout his professional career, he published many scientific works on geology and paleontology. During all of this time, the philanthropic and scientific Teilhard was flourishing and gaining international recognition, but the inner philosophical Teilhard was being suppressed. All of Teilhard's philosophical works were not published until after his death. He was never able to see his famous spiritual beings, quote, blossom into the quirky and beloved statement that it is. This quote, however, is just the surface of what Teilhard gave to the world. His now available publications provide intense and detailed descriptions of the mind, cosmic consciousness, and the afterlife. After living almost half a century, Teilhard didn't put his philosophy to paper until about his 40s in the 1920s. He was frequently warned by his authorities in the Jesuit order not to publish his works because they were not in line with what the church taught. He requested to teach philosophy in France, but the Jesuit order denied him the privilege. Leaving Europe, he lived out the rest of his days in New York, dedicating his time to writing and expanding on his spiritual theories. His understanding of the spiritual world began as a child with his first experience of existential mortality, which he wrote about in his work titled The Heart of Matter, saying, A memory, my very first, I was five or six. My mother had snipped a few of my curls. I picked one up and held it close to the fire. The hair was burnt up in a fraction of a second. A terrible grief assailed me. I had learned that I was perishable. At this discovery, I threw myself on the lawn and shed the bitterest tears of my existence. Pierre also writes that it was this occurrence that led to his lifelong inner search for the truth about our essence and where it is that it goes after the body ceases to exist. Being that he was a scientist of fossils and the earth, he understood the cyclical nature of evolution and how all things progress throughout the universe towards a higher state of operation. He meshed science with religion and built his theories upon mystical Christianity. Writing in a letter to his cousin during his time in World War I, we see his philosophy start to take shape. I don't know what sort of monument the country will later put up to commemorate the great battle. There's only one that would be appropriate, a great figure of Christ. Only the image of the crucified can sum up, express, and relieve all the horror and beauty, all the hope and deep mystery in such an avalanche of conflict and sorrows. As I looked at this scene of bitter toil, I felt completely overcome by the thought that I had the honor of standing at one of the two or three spots on which, at this very moment, the whole life of the universe surges and ebbs, places of pain, but it is there that a great future, this I believe more and more, is taking shape.
This great future which Taylor spoke of was a central idea in his later philosophies. He taught that consciousness was evolving and elevating on an individual level as well as a cosmic level. Despite fighting in some of the bloodiest of battles for the French military and seeing the horrible acts of evil before him, Teilhard wrote in another one of his letters that those days brought about the realization that we were meant to struggle toward a higher consciousness as he declares, Our future continues to be pretty vague, both as to when and what it will be. What the future imposes on our present existence is not exactly a feeling of depression. It's rather a sort of seriousness, of detachment, of a broadening, too, of outlook. This feeling, of course, borders on a sort of sadness, the sadness that accompanies every fundamental change, but it leads also to a sort of higher joy. I'd call it nostalgia for the front. The reasons, I believe, come down to this. The front cannot but attract us because it is, in one way, the extreme boundary between what one is already aware of and what is still in process of formation. Not only does one see there things that you experience nowhere else, but one also sees emerge from within one an underlying stream of clarity, energy, and freedom that is to be found hardly anywhere else in ordinary life. And the new form that the soul then takes on is that of the individual living quasi-collective life of all men, fulfilling a function far higher than that of the individual and becoming fully conscious of this new state. It goes without saying that at the front, you no longer look on things in the same way as you do in the rear. If you did, the sights you see and the life you lead would be more than you could bear. This exaltation is accompanied by a certain pain. Nevertheless, it is indeed an exaltation. And that's why one likes the front in spite of everything and misses it. Reflecting on his time in war, he was able to see the purpose in it and pull out the hidden gem amidst the chaos. In all the ensuing chaos around us, Teilhard saw an unfolding lotus that was marching us toward a higher understanding of what it means to be conscious and alive. Throughout his amazing works on consciousness and the cosmos, he developed several models and theories that still offer great value. One of these such models was what Teilhard called hyperphysics. Hyperphysics was an addition to the term metaphysics, which has more of a spiritual or fringe notion to it. Teilhard believed his work was scientific enough to not be considered fringe, but just a more elevated and quantum way of thinking about physics. It had both a touch of physics and spirituality, thus hyperphysics. Having gone through so much as a person, dealing with war, institutional career, death of family and friends, traveling the world, psychedelic visions, etc., Teilhard concluded that everything was revolving around what he called the Omega Point. For him, the Omega Point was the superconsciousness that was being formed out of the collective consciousness, which in a feedback loop style would sustain our growth as we all collectively put energy into it. In a speech he gave in China during his paleontology days, he stated, Let us suppose that from this universal center, this Omega Point, there constantly emanate radiations only perceptible 
to those persons whom we call mystics. Let us further imagine that, as the sensibility or response to mysticism of the human race increases with planetization, the awareness of Omega becomes so widespread as to warm the Earth psychically. This idea that consciousness could actually warm the Earth psychically was part of a larger idea that Teilhard proposed. He believed that consciousness, the invisible energy that animates all sentient life, has observable effects in the physical realm, and these effects are expressions of consciousness. Just as a magnetic field, invisible to the eye, can move certain metal dust particles, so too does our consciousness exert physical ripple effects. One of these effects, Teilhard believed, was temperature fluctuations. He taught that there were two basic energy fields, the visible and the invisible, which he called tangential and axial. He expands on this in one of his greatest works, The Human Phenomenon. Science, in its present reconstructions of the world, fails to grasp an essential factor, or, to be more exact, an entire dimension of the universe. All we need to do is to take the inside of things into account at the same time as the outside. To Teilhard, physical energy was simply the materialization of spiritual energy. Through our practice of connecting with the invisible energies and thus tapping into the omega point or source energy that contains the evolving future of a super spiritual organism that we feed and feeds us, Teilhard believed we could break the cycle of death. In his last essay, The Death Barrier and Co-Reflection, he speaks on the idea of individual consciousness being able to transcend death by people further focusing on their individual frequency, which is a unique part of the Omega Whole. To build and remember our essence is to retain our infinite self, which is always existent, but only forgets so as the energetic transference between death and rebirth swipes the lower vibrating consciousness that has not obtained ultimate willpower. Teilhard declares this in his death essay. The interior equilibrium of what we have called the noosphere requires the presence perceived by individuals of a higher pole or center that directs, sustains, and assembles the whole sheaf of our efforts. Teilhard believed our minds, our consciousness, produce energy, and that the collective energy could harmonize into the egregore of the omega point. This massive collection of energy could be used to power the manifestation of any future we envision for the human race. But naturally, the elevation of our spiritual mind could only occur if we vibrate at higher levels. The more we wake up and realize the inherent mystical truths, the more the Omega Point will grow and allow us to ascend and build the world we wish to see. Teilhard believed this point of spiritual singularity was destined to occur and that it was apparent in the struggling world around him, which was evidence that a larger cosmic evolution was taking place. In Shelley Renee Joy's amazing work on Teilhard, she demonstrates that the most powerful radio frequency transmitter on the planet produces 1 million watts. The Three Mile Island nuclear reactor outputs 873 million watts. 
Whereas the combined electromagnetic output of the human heartbeats on Earth produce 9,100,000,000 watts of energy. Together, our energy fields could be used to run the most powerful machine there ever was. This machine is Teilhard's Omega Point. It is the very fabric of space-time. We were meant to evolve and use our bodies and minds as receivers and transmitters to tap into the larger energy fields of our planet and eventual cosmos. He also wrote, Men have for long been seeking a means of immediately influencing the bodies and souls around them by their will, and of penetrating them by a direct vision. Nothing seems to me more vital from the point of view of human energy than the spontaneous appearance and eventually the systematic cultivation of such a cosmic sense. Pierre Taylor de Chardin was a scientific mystic and a Christian cosmonaut. He was ahead of his time. In a letter to his nephew, which surfaced after his death, he wrote to his nephew, stating that he wished to die peacefully on an Easter Sunday. Taylor, living a life of mystery and spiritual serendipity, died on April 10, 1955, on an Easter Sunday. He passed away at St. Patrick's Cathedral, staring through a window while sipping some tea. His close friend who was there with her daughter described him as gracefully falling like a stricken tree. And of all that Taylor went through, of all that he knew, he was sure that we are not humans having spiritual experiences, but spiritual beings having human experiences.